What an immense blessing to be able to meet together on the first of the week. COVID is a pandemic and it's all across this world and yet it hasn't stopped us from being here this morning. The gospel cannot be shut in. We're grateful for those who are online with us who can't be here this morning. We don't have enough space to, to space out if everybody were to come and that's a blessing as well. We're grateful for those who are participating online with us from all over. We're thankful for those who maybe are tuning in after the fact and will be listening to these lessons later on. If we can be helpful to you, we pray that you'll reach out to us. Our desire here is to glorify God, to worship Him. And the reason we meet together is to encourage one another to do that. And the only way we really know how to do that is if we're looking into His Word together, studying His Word, learning His desire for us, and encouraging one another to do the very things that He's revealed to us here. We love Him because He loved us first, and the way we show that we love Him is obeying His commands. And so as we look at this lesson today, we're going to see people who were claiming to love God who had set aside God's Word. And unfortunately, that seems to be a condition of many in the world, in the religious world, many who will speak great things about God, and yet they don't seem to want to do what He says to do. It is a challenge. He challenges us to be different than the world would have us be. He challenges us to be different than we would have ourselves be because He wants to make us into something so much better. And so I encourage you to challenge yourself as we look at these words today. Is there a possibility you're laying aside the commandment of God to hold on to traditions of men or tradition, traditions in your own heart, things you would rather God had said than what he really did. I want us to look at the context here in, in uh, Mark chapter 7. We see these Pharisees and scribes in verse 1 had come to him from Jerusalem. So these are not the people that were around him that were already listening to his teaching all the time. These are people that were sent up from the religious establishment down in Jerusalem. These Pharisees and scribes had come up. They had been in conflict with Jesus for nearly two years at this point. The religious establishment had been, and often he had come into conflict with them because of his teaching. They are, did not see in him the Christ they had been expecting, the promised one they had been inspect, expecting. They saw him as a false teacher. Already in Capernaum, if you'll go back with me in the book of Mark, I want to stay within the book of Mark just to look at these references real quickly here. But in Capernaum, when he first began teaching, in Mark chapter 1, he had gone into the, the synagogue on the Sabbath, in verse 21 of chapter 1. And in verse 22, as he taught, they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. And so the scribes were a little offended by the response that the people in the synagogue in Capernaum have given. Because Jesus will say, say things like, Verily I say to you, or this is the truth that comes from God, and he'll... He'll say it with authority, and he simply just speaks the word of God. But the, the scribes and the Pharisees here are starting to notice that the people are giving ear to Jesus. Jesus leaves from the region of Capernaum. He goes around the, the villages in Galilee. When he comes back to Capernaum in chapter 2, and he's teaching in the house there, and this paralyzed man is let down through the roof before, before Jesus. And Jesus looks at him and sees the faith that he had and the men who carried him there had. And he says in verse 5 of chapter 2, Son, your sins are forgiven you. And we're told some of the scribes were sitting there, reasoning in their hearts, why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Well, they're right. But they're unwilling to listen to the other things Jesus is saying, to the things he's doing and saying that prove who he is. In the spot, he reads their hearts for them and says, why did you think that? Who can read their hearts but God? Then he immediately heals the man. Who can heal this paralyzed man but God? They missed out on the teaching and on two confirmations of the teaching that he actually did forgive this man's sins. And they are 
turned around by him. They don't want to, they are offended by him. They don't want to follow what he's teaching. In verse 16, as Jesus is sitting in the house of Matthew, the tax collector, he's sitting with uh, tax collectors and sinners, and the scribes and Pharisees saw him there and said, how does he eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? They didn't say it to him. They said it behind his back to the other disciples that were following him. They're trying to undermine his influence and make it look like, well, here's your holier than thou that heals people of their sins, and yet he's right in there with the sinners. This guy is not someone you want to be following. So they're trying to undermine his influence. In verse 18 of chapter 2, they accuse him of not keeping the fast that John the Baptist and the Pharisees do. And Jesus has a response for them. Then they accuse him as he goes through the grain fields on the Sabbath, as he's eating, he's rubbing the heads of grain. He's doing what's unlawful on the Sabbath. You're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. Well, if you can lift a fork to your mouth, you can rub the heads of grain off and eat. And Jesus says there that he's Lord of the Sabbath. It gets so bad by chapter 3 that they come to watch him, verse 2 says. They watched him closely in the synagogue, whether he would heal on the Sabbath so they might accuse him. Why are you supposed to go to synagogue? <laughs> You're supposed to go to learn. You're supposed to go to worship God. You're supposed to be there for good things. They went specifically to watch Jesus and see if they could find a reason to accuse him. They're not there for God. And so by verse 6, they leave. The Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians. This is Mark 3, verse 6, how they might destroy him. <laughs> Their motivation is completely wrong as they've gone into the, uh, the synagogue here. The scribes had already been sent once before. This is when they accused him of being Beelzebub or being in league with Beelzebub. He cast out demons because he's, he's in league with the, with the greatest of them. So they've been coming to him to accuse. And as we look then in Mark chapter 7, they're sent up from Jerusalem. These are more who have come to this place, not because they want to hear what he's teaching and listen to it and, and learn from it. They've come looking for accusations. What they're really doing is trying to undermine his influence. I pointed that out a couple of times already. And they're looking for enough of a witness to get him put to death. Chapter 3, verse 6 said, they went out and plotted already with the Herodians how they might destroy him, literally how they might put him to death. Deuteronomy 19, 15 says, there must be the word of two or three witnesses to confirm someone who's going to be put to death. They're trying to get him to confirm a witness against himself. They've got enough people that have seen him say enough things that make it look like he's blaspheming. Then they can get him stoned as a blasphemer. That's what they're trying to do. The Gospel of John really works on that angle of things, showing the legitimate witness for Jesus and how they're trying to use an illegitimate witness against him. Uh, and so that's what the Jews are looking for, is enough of a witness so they can get Jesus put to death and get him out of the way. So as they come to Jesus here, in Mark chapter 7, they come and they're observing him, and they saw his disciples, possibly seeing him as well, eating with unwashed hands. It says they found fault. It doesn't say Jesus sinned. It doesn't say he did something wrong. It says they found fault with it. And they begin to accuse him based on their tradition, based on their religion that's been handed down from the elders. Why is it that, you, uh, that your disciples don't walk according to the tradition of the elders, they said in verse 5, but they eat bread with unwashed hands? How dare they do this? Do they not respect the elders of this community? Do they not respect the traditions that have been handed down? Notice every time they say tradition. They understand this is not the doctrine of God. This is not a matter of sin. Sometimes we have these great proverbial quotes. Cleanliness is next to godliness, people say. And they think that's from the Bible. Well, that's not from the Bible. 
That concept is somewhat in the Bible, but that's not a Bible phrase. It's not a law of God. Cleanliness is next to godliness. And there are many others that people end up bringing up as though they were straight from the Bible. In this case, they're following a tradition based loosely on one of God's laws. We'll look at that in a moment. So they find fault with Jesus. That's because they're looking for fault with him. They're not willing to listen to what he says first. They just want to find a reason to accuse him. And so he begins to respond to their accusation, starting in verse 6. And this had to be really hard to hear. <laughs> had to be hard to hear in Isaiah's day. But Jesus looks at these religious leaders, and he says, Isaiah was talking about you. Isaiah prophesied about you, you hypocrites. Can you imagine? <laughs> the same Isaiah who, in chapter 1 of his book, in verse 10, called them princes of Sodom and leaders of Gomorrah. They're worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. He was speaking to the Jews. It's amazing to think about that. Isaiah's message specifically was written to the unfaithful in Judah and Jerusalem. Jews. Isaiah came to tell them they needed to repent. and was going to show them things that were going to come on them if they didn't, and things that were coming on all the world because of the unrighteousness of men. So Isaiah's message was to unfaithful Judah. The good Jew in Jesus' day knows that, and Jesus says, you are the ones Isaiah was talking to. It wasn't those people back then. You think you got off because they received the punishment? You're their sons. You can do exactly as they do. Isaiah was speaking of you, you hypocrites. There was something honorable in the way they spoke. But you see what they do. Their actions tell a completely different story. They're hypocrites. The word that Jesus uses here means a play actor, someone on a stage who puts on a face to be one thing when really something else completely. And so they look like these, this beautiful aspect, this, this whitewashed tomb, <laughs> this outward aspect of, of glory and religion, when really for inside they're dead man's bones. Jesus calls them hypocrites. The truth is, Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. We usually stress the first part. If you love me, keep my commandments. That's true. But their commandments are his. God had tested Israel with something very similar. In Deuteronomy chapter 13. Deuteronomy chapter 13, the first five verses, they're really interesting. This is among the first people that God had called out as a nation here. The first man who's produced any kind of miraculous signs among them is Moses. And he's the one laying down this law about how they should consider these prophets that come along and actually produce signs that happen. But I want you to notice where the focus is. Deuteronomy 13, first five verses. If there arises among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, and he gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder comes to pass of which he spoke to you, saying, Let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him, and keep his commandments, and obey his voice. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death, because he has spoken in order to turn you away from the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, and redeemed you from the house of bondage, to entice you from the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall put away the evil from your midst. What God said there, in much more language, is the same thing Jesus said in John. If you love me, keep my commandments. I don't care what you saw. I don't care what I allowed to happen. Here God allowed this prophet to speak something, and then it happened. 
God allowed that. But he said, pay attention to the words. Because if they're not my words, I'm just testing you with that sign. I'm testing you with what he did. You're going to walk after what I say. You're going to do the things I do if you love me. God is testing whether you love me, is what he says there in verse 4. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. These hypocrites say they love God, but they're not keeping his commandments. Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 6, here's the issue. God is handing down the law for them to keep, but he didn't want them to keep it on the stones. He didn't want those things just to stay inside the ark on those tablets that Moses put in there. He says, Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, the most famous uh, part of the law in, in Jewish history, at least. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. This is where I want you to write them. Correcting their error later in Jeremiah, he says, I'll do it. I'll write the words on their heart since they didn't. They were supposed to. So it's a heart problem. It's not a knowledge issue. They've got the words of God in their hands. They know the word. They don't put it on their heart. And so they run back to it every time they need it to accuse someone, but not to take the accusation to heart. If you love me, keep my commandments. What Jesus says about them, going back to Mark 7 now, is that because of this attitude of theirs, their worship had become vain, had become empty, had become worthless. You think about that. Do you want your, your worship to come up before God as a good thing? Cain and Abel are a great example of that. Abel was accepted and therefore his offering was accepted. Cain, however, was not accepted and therefore his offering was not accepted. God saw the difference in the two people. He was looking first at them and then decided whether he would accept their, their worship or not. Our worship becomes vain and empty if we're not doing it according to his word. If we're not seeking him with our worship. They were teaching here what they called doctrine, as though it came from God, but the truth is it was from men and not from God. In vain they worship me, verse 7 says, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Paul lays out an argument similar to that in Romans chapter 10, when he's speaking of his desire for his Jewish brethren who have rejected the righteousness that comes from God. He was one of them, he knows. He was a Pharisee. He understands very well what they had done. He says, Romans 10 verse 1, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they have, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. They have laid aside God's righteousness. And they've claimed that it comes in some other way. In Romans chapter 1, he'd already said that those who do such a thing... They know God, but they don't glorify Him as God. They're not thankful. They become futile in their thoughts. Their foolish hearts are darkened. Professing to be wise, they become fools and change the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. You'll notice what Eve says in Genesis chapter 3 when the serpent comes to her and asks her, what is the law about the trees? Has God said you can't eat from all the trees? And she says, well, God says we can eat from all the trees. But of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, God has said, we may not eat, nor may we touch it, lest we die. Did God say that? We're not shown that God says that in the text. Eve believes that God said that. She's created a doctrine around that tree that she says came from God. We have no indication that came from God, except for what she says. I believe she's done the same thing as these Jews here. 
She set up her own righteousness with regard to that tree. I'm not even going to touch it. That's what God said. But then what happens when the tempter comes and she touches it and doesn't die, she's then encouraged by her false doctrine to continue going beyond even what God actually did say. And she eats of it. (laughs) The truth is, we know this from Romans 10 and verse 17 and from many other verses in the Old Testament, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. If, as the Hebrew writer says, without faith it's impossible to please him, then those who refuse to hear the word of God, it's impossible to please God, and therefore they are lost. If what we're hearing are doctrines and commandments of men and not the word of God, then it's impossible for us to please God, because faith comes through his word. Does that logically conclude? Can you follow that? What they're doing here is they're teaching as doctrine the commandments of men. It's made their worship empty. It's made them unable to access God through faith because they've rejected the faith that came from him to set up their own righteousness. What a problem. And it sounds familiar. It sounds like something we all have done in our own lives, something we've all witnessed others doing, and something we need to be careful of we don't continue to do. Anytime we make any change to God's word, in truth, It betrays a lack of faith in what he actually said. It's only faith if we obey him. That's where faith comes from, is from his word and obeying his word. But if I say, I don't like the way he said that, or I don't really understand that, and we just change it a little bit, it's no longer from faith. It's become a vain, empty form of worship by men's doctrines. It's so subtle. And boy, Satan wants us to think that we're doing good. Trying to encourage Eve with the things she was saying. You're right, he says in verse 5. God doesn't want you to eat because he knows then you'll know the things he does. You'll be like him. We convince ourselves so easily. We allow ourselves to be convinced so easily. I want you to notice with me, going back in Mark 7 here, I want you to notice this simple progression that vain worship followed here. This is a danger, and Jesus points it out. Mark uh, most clearly relays it to us. Look at the simple progression they followed. First off, they had laid aside the commandment of God in verse 8. Laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the traditions of men, washing of pitchers, cups, many other such things you do. They actually had ignored God's command because of these traditions that they had. (laughs) So while God was telling them, and, and this seems to be related to the Gentile relationships, while God was telling them to proselyte, to teach the Gentiles, they were so concerned with how dirty the Gentiles are that instead of going near them, they even washed everything the Gentiles might have touched in the marketplace. They didn't know about these cleanliness laws that we have in Leviticus, and they might have accidentally uh, let these cups and pitchers and sofas, my version has, or couches, they may have let those become contaminated by a woman's menstrual flow, or by some kind of bodily discharge, or by this lizard that's fallen into it. We know all these laws. They don't know those. So we'll just wash everything ceremonially when we bring it from the marketplace. Sounds like a great idea at first. Until that becomes your religion, and it's no longer about teaching the Gentiles the difference, the distinction. It's no longer remembering why those laws were made. It's all about keeping me from being dirty like them. But my heart never changes. It's all external. And we ignore God's command because of men's traditions. This first aspect is really passive. Traditions of men sometimes have a real appeal. They look like There's something wise that we've come up with that really help us do God's will. I want you to look at Colossians chapter 2, and I want to tell you a a story while we we look at this of something that really happened with me. 
Colossians chapter 2, beginning at verse 18. Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head from, which, from whom all the body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using, according to the commandments and doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. So men make rules. Men make doctrines. Men make strong doctrines, as they say in Brazil and some of the congregations there, so that they'll keep you from getting over into some, some gray territory, some territory where you might be induced to sin. So you just stay away from that by these doctrines we've set up for you. I was studying with a young lady. She was the daughter of one of the members of a congregation we were a part of in Brazil. I'd been studying with her for several months, and she was engaged to be married. And I kept inviting her, her future husband to join us through her. He would never show up. And she said, no, I don't think he's going to join us. He's a deacon at this big congregation, and they've got some really strong rules there, and he likes being there, and he's, he's kind of high up, so I don't think he's going to join us. Well, one day we happened to be out at the park, my family and I, and we ran into this sister, and her daughter was there, and her, her uh, future husband was there with her. I was wearing board shorts. Like, they weren't in any way scandalous, but they were, they were just longer shorts. And I noticed he wouldn't look. He just kept turning his face away as I was trying to invite him to come to a study. Well, finally I asked her at our next study, why was your husband, like, so strange? Well, men at the congregation where he is, they don't wear shorts. That's a sin. And so there's no way he's ever going to study with you now. Well, I was shocked by that. I didn't mean to offend him. About two months later, they get married quickly. <laughs> she was pregnant. <laughs> he doesn't wear shorts because he doesn't want to be enticed to sin, and yet, he'll have a relationship with a woman he's not married to yet. So it looks like a really great thing. But teaching this doctrine about not wearing shorts doesn't do what God's law does. It doesn't go to the heart and teach the heart to change. It just changes a few externals. And so what we ran into so often are people who, when they're around people from church, don't wear shorts. <laughs> but when they're off on their own, they'll wear them. When they're around people from church, they'll keep all these strong doctrines. But when they're off on their own or with us, they'll do whatever they want to. That's not a heart change. Those are externals. That's playing at church. That's being a hypocrite, putting on one face while really what you're doing is something completely different. That's what man-made doctrines do. They exchange the external, but they don't really transform the internal. Romans chapter 12 says, when we lay ourselves down as a sacrifice every day, that makes a transformation of our mind, a renewing of our mind in Christ. So it's a passive thing. You kind of lay aside God's command because you have this tradition of men that seems to work better. The truth is we have to have absolute confidence in his word. That has to trump our human reasoning. Do you think Abraham understood when God said, take your son, your only son whom you love, and sacrifice him? Think he understood that? We're not told that he did. What we're told in Hebrews is he had enough faith <laughs> that if God said this is the son of the promise and God says kill him, somehow God's going to bring him back to life so he can fulfill his promise. He had the word of God, the promise of God, and his faith. And that carried him through. <laughs> we have to trust in God's word. 
above our human reasoning. There's going to be things we don't understand at the time. I believe the more we practice Christianity, the more we understand it, the deeper it becomes uh, in its understanding to us. But at first, there are going to be things that God asks us to do that I just don't know why he said that, but I'm going to do it because I trust him. <laughs> Following him has to trump human reasoning. Hebrews 5.9 says, not just the creator, but he's the author of eternal salvation to all who understand what he said to do. <laughs> no? To all who obey what he said to do. <laughs> my children, as I'm teaching them and as they're, they're being raised by myself and my wife, they don't understand the motivation behind a lot of the things that we command them to do in our home. We understand it. <laughs> we know the dangers that are out there. We know that we're working to build their hearts in the right direction toward God. And so we teach them and tell them things that they can't fully understand. They may not agree with, but we expect them to obey. God's knowledge is so far superior to ours that when he tells us what to do, we do it without questioning because we trust him way more than our human reasoning. But the first thing they did was lay aside the commandments. It's this passive laying aside because they've got this tradition that looks better. But then what happens with it is it turns into rejection of the commandment of God. Verse 9, all too well you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me is Corban, that is a gift to God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or mother. They reject the command of God. Now they begin to defend their tradition so they can keep it instead of what God had said to do. In Exodus 20, one of the Ten Commandments is honor father and mother. In Exodus 21, early on, as the commandments are being fleshed out in practice, he who curses father or mother is condemned. Later on, in the book of Leviticus, once the tabernacle's constructed, and once the offerings start to come in, there is regulation. They are commandments, but there's regulation about the voluntary offerings. What's compulsory is honoring father and mother. What's voluntary is taking in an offering. If you're going to do it, do it this way. <laughs> but you better be taking care of mother and father. That's part of the Ten Commandments. That's where God placed the basis of his law, that the other things are fleshing out. The thing is, and we see this so much with the Pharisaical heart and often with our own hypocritical hearts, the temple offering is much more visible than caring for my parents at home. <laughs> and so there's a temptation to want to do what everybody can see and let aside the things that no one else can see. In Mark chapter 12, Jesus and the apostles are observing as people are putting in these great quantities of money into the money box at the treasury, the temple. And the Pharisees are pouring in these great, huge quantities. And that's when we have the teaching of the widow who just lays in the two mites. But you see, the Pharisees are making a show. Jesus had already told them, don't blow a trumpet when you give alms. Everybody doesn't need to know about that. Don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. Jesus had told them to be careful. They don't lose their reward from God by trying to get their reward from men. There was a real temptation to do the more visible and leave off the more important, in this case, take care of mother and father like they'd taken care of you. Honoring mother and father with your goods instead of saying, I'm sorry, I just can't give you that. I've already promised to give that to God. So what they do in the end, going back now, uh, Mark 7, verse 12, you no longer let him do anything for his father and mother making the word of God of no effect through your tradition which you have handed down, and many such things you do. Finally, 
after they've laid aside the commandment of God because there's this tradition that looks better, after they've then rejected the word of God to defend this tradition that looks better to them, then they make the word of God of no effect because they begin to hand down their tradition to the next generation. And that becomes the new standard instead of God's word. I thought God's word said this, yeah, but, but here we do this. Oh, okay, really? No, I thought here we did what the word of God says. Not here. I've heard people use that excuse before. I know that's not what the word of God says, but it was good enough for my grandma. It was good enough for my mom. It's good enough for me. You're defending a tradition. You're making the word of God of no effect. I know God said that, but it makes the word of God of no effect. The word of God can only affect, can only have an effect on those who hear it. Isaiah 55, verses 10 and 11, God's word will do what it was set out to do. You know what it was set out to do in Isaiah? Make them realize they had ears that didn't want to hear. He said, preach until no one else will listen. What? I thought we were supposed to preach until everybody's converted. That's not it. We're supposed to preach until no one has an excuse. On the day of judgment, God's going to say, you heard the word. You rejected it. Isaiah says the word will do what it's sent out to do. But in Romans 10, on the positive side of that, here's Paul teaching about that faith that comes from hearing. How shall they call on him whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in whom they have not heard? How shall they hear without a preacher? How shall they preach unless they are sent? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring the glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? <laughs> the word goes out. It must be heard. And then some will believe and some will reject. <laughs> but if the word of God is of no effect because it's not even being heard... How many generations of religious people have literally never heard the word of God? They've heard the traditions of men. It's all couched in this beautiful, flowery religious language that mentions a verse or two of the Bible, taken completely out of context and not even fully mentioned. How many religions are built on that? Such a shame. What began as careless and lazy negligence and laying aside of the word of God then becomes an active defense of traditions in place of truth and then that purpose transmission of that body of tradition now handed down generation after generation after generation. What a shame that the word of God can be made of no effect because people exchange the truth of God for the lie. It's exactly what they did. That's the accusation in Romans, and we can see it played out over and over again. I'm not here to pick on anyone's religion, but I want us to consider the progression of this idea, this, this way this progresses, this false doctrinism, with any kind of man-made doctrine, but I want to look at one specifically today. I want to look at Catholic baptism. And I put baptism in quotes because I don't consider what the Catholics do to be baptism. It's not what the Bible teaches. But Catholic baptism began as a concession for sick people. They can't be immersed in water. We know that's what it, the Bible teaches, but we can't. That'll kill them. But we can sprinkle some water over them or pour some water over them. Now, that met with a lot of resistance. There were a lot of people who wouldn't accept that. In fact, it wasn't called baptism for centuries. It's called Novationism. Do like they did to this Novation guy. And many people rejected it until finally it was accepted by Vatican Council that no longer is immersion baptism, but this sprinkling or pouring can be accepted as well. As the Catholic idea expanded, this kind of baptism is much more portable. You can take this anywhere and pour water on somebody anywhere you go. And it fits our changing dogma, our doctrine, our teaching here. 
And so the command is then rejected. First it was just laid aside in special cases. Now it's rejected. We don't need that. This is much better. We can defend this as taking this anywhere. To the point that it's then wrapped up as the doctrine. Immersion, and immersion for believers, that's not even a question. You begin to baptize infants, sprinkling them, because, well, it works just as good as immersion. Now you can do it on anybody. They don't have to believe and be baptized. As Jesus said, our tradition teaches this. I sat down with a Catholic priest early in my conversion because I was confused by the things they were teaching. And I said, well, you know the Bible teaches this. And he says, huh, I don't need the Bible. We've got so many centuries of tradition. That's what we go by. And I said, you're not going to use the Bible in our discussion? He says, no. I said, well, I guess we don't have any more discussion. He says, yeah, I don't think we do. <laughs> and so that was the end of that discussion. We didn't have a common ground to start from because he was working from a body of tradition that had rejected the word of God and then handed it down. It made the word of God of no effect among all those who were following that tradition. What a sad, sad thing. People who claimed to love God but didn't know God because they'd never heard his word. It made the word of God of no effect. And so Jesus turned to the multitude. He didn't leave this just with those Pharisees. He turns to the multitude. He came to teach. So he taught the multitude and us with this parable. Let's read the parable now the, in verses 14 to 23 and finish up. When he had called all the multitude to himself, this is Mark 7, 14, he said to them, Hear me, everyone, and understand. There is nothing that enters a man from outside which can defile him. But the things which come out of him, those are the things that defile a man. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. When he had entered a house away from the crowd, his disciples asked him concerning the parable. So he said to them, Are you thus without understanding also? Do you not perceive that whatever enters a man from outside cannot defile him, because it does not enter his heart but his stomach, and is eliminated, thus purifying all foods? And he said, What comes out of a man, that defiles a man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a man. This parable is perhaps the most disgusting of the parables Jesus taught. He's actually speaking of the natural bodily function of eating and eliminating waste. And so he's saying that it's not the eating. It's not whatever you take into your, to your mouth, even if you do it with unclean hands, even if you do it in an unclean vessel. The Pharisees were washing the exterior part of the cups and vessels while, while inside they were filthy. It's not that that's going to make you unclean. But the natural bodily function, what goes out as sewage, that'll make you unclean. We don't go play in a sewer. We get that stuff out of our house. We understand physically this parable. We don't want that stuff around. It contaminates us. And so God made the cleanliness laws in Leviticus 15. You get rid of things that are unclean. In Deuteronomy 23, when the soldiers are out, you cover that stuff up. We don't want that around. But then he takes that physical parable, that disgusting image, and turns it into this spiritual application. He says that doctrine coming from outside of man, the things that are coming into us from outside, that is from God in the case here, 1 Corinthians 2 verses 9 through 13, it's not that it's entered into man's hearts or ears, it's that God spoke it through the apostles. It came externally from man. It didn't come in from the idea of men. That won't defile. It's what comes from within that defiles. As the food goes in, that doesn't harm anybody. What comes out defiles. And so he turned this thing spiritually. 
in this list of contaminants that come out of men, starting at verse 21, this evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, covetousness, wickedness, all of these things, they're abhorrent. These are disgusting things to the right-thinking Jew, to any right-thinking moral person. These are disgusting things. Isn't it interesting to note that the very first thing on the list is evil thoughts. I don't know if your version has that, but this concept is these things that men generate in their minds. It sounds like Genesis 6-5, which made God destroy the world with the flood. Go back and look at the wording in Genesis 6-5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Evil thoughts, is that such a bad thing? It's the first thing on this list. And Jesus says those things come out of men's hearts, and they contaminate others. Evil thoughts are what's behind false doctrines. I know more than God does. I got this figured out. God didn't say it right. Let's say it this way. I know God said this, but here we do this. Those are evil thoughts. If I want to do God's will, then I have to know his will, have to trust his will, have to love him enough to do what he says. I want us to think about that a little bit. Those people had come from Jerusalem and had come together to Jesus. And Mark, that's usually a good thing. When you come together to Jesus, you're going to leave with a blessing. You've come to see what he's all about, to hear what he has to say. But that's not the case here. They were sent to Jesus. They came together him, to him for selfish reasons, not because they wanted to see what God was going to do and what God was going to say. And so I ask you, why have you come to him today? We're gathered together, in a sense, even those who are online are gathered together. We've come looking for something. We've come to hear Jesus, perhaps. But have we come just to confirm things we already believe? Possibly. There is benefit in hearing the same things over and over and confirming the doctrine. But what if we've just come here to confirm that we're the good guys, we're doing it right? We better be careful with that. What are traditions that we may have set up that we just keep confirming among ourselves by the way we do things instead of conferring with the Word of God and checking on our own traditions? That's hard to do, but we have to be willing to do that. We need to challenge ourselves. Have we come to accuse those who don't believe like we do? It was easy, in essence, to show that example from the Catholics, but I'm not here to pick on the Catholics. As I look at that example, I think, what am I doing like that? In my own practice before the Lord, are there things that I'm laying aside, that I'm then defending as I laid them aside, and that I'm teaching my children to do the same thing? I better be careful. Let the Catholics serve as an example. Let the Jews of the Old Testament serve as an example. Let my own errors in my own life serve as an example and encourage me to do better next time. We're together to build one another up. And so we need to be observing these things together. Am I here to learn from him and change my behavior? Those Jews that day were not the Pharisees and the ones who came from Jerusalem. The others who were there originally were. The apostles certainly were. They stuck around and asked questions. What about this? And Jesus said, are you so dull of hearing? Let me tell you again, they needed it. I know that sometimes I'm dull of hearing. I want to hear it again. Tell me again, please. Because I want to make sure I got it right. That's where faith comes from. I want to hear. I want to hear it again. As Lydia was listening, her heart was open to do the will of God, as we studied in our class in Acts today. Would Jesus, looking at your life, call you a hypocrite? Would your wife or your husband, looking at your life, call you a hypocrite? Would your children, looking at your life, call you a hypocrite? Would your neighbors or coworkers or your students with you at school, looking at your life, 
call you a hypocrite. In other words, are you saying one thing but doing something else? Being here together encourages us to think about that challenge as well. Is your worship vain and selfish? Or is it focused on God? Did you come here thinking, I can't wait to see what I'm going to get out of it? <laughs> or have you left sometimes thinking, I didn't get anything out of that? <laughs> I've heard people say that before. I didn't get anything out of that. Were you there to worship God? <laughs> or were you looking for somebody to worship you? These men, in the end, as they changed these doctrines around, they were the ones that were being looked up to as the great teachers, these great rabbis. They loved the greetings in the marketplace and the, the highest seats in the synagogues. They were getting something out of it for themselves. There is great reward in serving God. I'm not saying we shouldn't be looking to that reward. What a blessing. The reward will be being with God. But if we're here for some selfish, carnal reason, as those people were, we better be checking our hearts against that. In the end, would you come to serve Jesus in truth this very day? We'd love to help you do that. That's our desire. That's the reason we ask these challenging questions. We're not asking just of you. We're asking of ourselves, too. We need to challenge ourselves every day with this kind of questioning. As we read the Word, we need to read it with a deep understanding. What does God want from me? What does God want from you? What do you want from God? Are you willing to confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, to come forward repentant of your sins, to have them washed away in the waters of baptism? We would love to help you do that. If you don't know what all that means, we'd love to study with you. You can understand that as well by looking at the Word that we looked at. We look at it together with you and charge us and encourage us to do better as well. If you're a Christian, you've been struggling. You've been acting like a hypocrite in some way. We'd love to help you with that. We don't want you to struggle alone. We're all here together. We're all struggling against the devil's wiles every single day. And God would have us build each other up. If we can build you up, we can help you in some way. Let that need be known. Seek us out. Come forward now if you would. Whatever your need is, make it known. We're going to stand and sing this song to encourage your decision.